Well, let me just tell you also in the Brandon household, uh, thank you notes are, are hard to write. Uh, there's just something about after Christmas or birthday when our kids have received some sort of a, a present or adults have received some sort of present. It takes a bit of organization to, to sit us down. Thanks, Yvonne. To help sit us down and to get the note cards out and to actually write a note of thanks, of appreciation to grandparents or uncles or others who have given gifts. And I know the situation isn't uh, just unique to us. I've received thank you notes several months after weddings. For example, particularly bride and groom are really busy with life and and it's just hard to sit down and uh, write a thank you note to find the time for that. But I always appreciate the notes, regardless of how late they come, because it gives me a, a sense of, of their own valuing, just the expression of kindness that a, that a gift was, despite how big the gift is. A note of thanks is always appreciated. As we come this morning to our time in the Word, uh, Paul is essentially in Philippians writing a, a thank you note. In fact, that's the whole reason why Paul wrote the book of Philippians, because of a gift that he received from those in Philippi. The church in Philippi had heard about his arrest in Rome, uh, how he arrested in Jerusalem, his travel to Rome, how he was waiting trial there under the Roman authorities. And, and to help him in his distress, they had sent him a financial gift. They sent it through a man named Epaphroditus who made the long and dangerous journey to Rome to deliver the money. And here in verse 18, we can even see Paul acknowledging that gift. He says, I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And the book of Philippians is essentially the letter, the thank you note that Paul wrote back to the church in Philippi, carried by Epaphroditus to give thanks for the gift that he had received from them. And he, he really begins this word of thanks in chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, you might say, well, why does, why does he delay so long? Uh, I'm not sure a little bit. Like, why does he start in Philippians with his name? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. We normally put our, our name at the end of a letter. That's what he did here at the beginning. But he had so many other kind of more important things in his mind but now in verse 10, he begins to express his thanks. Let me read 10 through 14 is our text this morning. Paul writes this, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, if you're observant there, you might, you might have observed something that Paul never uses the word thanks in terms of this thank you note is what I, I'm calling it. But though he, he doesn't explicitly say that, there is joy and appreciation for his gift which comes shining through. And in that sense, I say you can call this a, a thank you note, even if he didn't even use the words exactly. But this text here has much to teach us about giving and receiving. Because the Philippians gave a gift and Paul responds to that. And also Paul receiving this gift, he responds to them as well. It's my title of my message this morning. Giving and receiving. These are my two points. First point, giving. 
Second point, receiving. Giving, we're going to focus upon just the Philippians giving to Paul. Receiving, we're going to focus upon Paul's reception of the gift. We see giving in verses 10 and 14. Kind of forms a sandwich here, if you will. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, Paul is saying that I am I'm rejoicing that you have revived your concern for me. You've sent this gift to me. Here's my lesson number one. Giving brings joy. Giving brings joy. You all know Philippians is all about joy. We've had this slide up here. I don't know how many sermons I've preached on it. Rejoice in the Gospel. We see Paul here writing... I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. In Philippians, the noun joy is used seven times in these four chapters. The verb rejoice is used nine times. I mean, 16 times in four chapters, either joy or rejoicing is used, which is by far the densest usage of this word in all the New Testament. And we see this here, this word coming up here in in verse 1. I'm rejoicing in the Lord But he didn't just say that he's rejoicing in the Lord. He added the superlative greatly. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that this expression is used about joyfully rejoicing greatly is his idea here. Joy is talked about. Rejoicing is talked about in the Bible, but never in a superlative way like this. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And that's my point, right? The giving brings joy. It brought joy to the one who received the gift. But notice why Paul was so thrilled at receiving the gift. It's not because of the gift. And it's not because of some great need in his own life. In fact, you will look in vain throughout this whole passage to see Paul even mention or talk much about the gift or even how much it was needed and appreciated. That's not what gave him joy. What gave him joy was the fact that the Philippians had had a love and a longing for Paul. And that's where Paul focuses his joy upon. He says that's the last half of verse 10. right? That now at last you revived your concern for me. And Paul is rejoicing in their thoughtful love. The fact that, that they had a concern for Paul. More than the gift itself. And this often stirs Paul to praise. You can read other epistles... And it's often when he hears of people really walking with the Lord, loving God, believing and trusting in Christ, and loving others, that stirs his heart to thankfulness. Ephesians 1, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I, I've heard of your faith, I've, I've heard of your love, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. It's the, it's the faith and love that stirs Paul to give thanks to God. Or Colossians 1, 3 and 4, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. We heard of your faith, we heard of your love, and that has stirred us to give thanks to God for you. 1 Thessalonians 1, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. You've believed in Christ. You've demonstrated that love. And in that, we do rejoice. And here, it's the same way. Paul delights most when he sees others loving others. When he sees love in action. And perhaps you heard it said many times before, it's not the gift that matters, it's the thought that counts. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. It's not the gift, it's the thought. You won't, you won't find much talk about the gift, but you'll find a lot of talk about the thought 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. We have no idea the size of the gift that the Philippians sent Paul. We only know that he sent a gift. It's because the gift isn't the issue. It's their heart that is the issue. And I even need to understand it was ten years in coming. If you trace through the book of Acts, you see that in Acts 16 records the planting of the church in Philippi. They went, then went to Thessalonica and to Berea and to Athens and Corinth and then went back to Jerusalem. And it had been some time, that was about A.D. 50, when the church of Philippi was planted. And this letter of Philippians was written about A.D. 60, about ten years later. They've been quiet for some time. And Paul simply ascribed this to their circumstances. He said, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. He, he, he's, just, he's just kind of passing over a little bit, this, this ten years of silence. He said, you were concerned. Yes, I'm not saying that you didn't have any concern for me, but you lacked an opportunity. Now, we don't know why. Maybe it was their genuine poverty. They didn't have anything to spare. Maybe it was that they were engaged in giving to the cause of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, which Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Maybe there were some internal conflicts in the church that, that so consumed their energies before they, they got out. We don't, we don't know, but now we know after 10 years, they're able to give. They sent Paul their gift and he greatly rejoiced in their heart and their concern for him. And let me just say this, that, that Paul's heart is my heart. That, that Paul rejoiced in the fact that they were a giving people. And over the years, my exhortation, church family, to all of you, has just been to be givers Hold what you have with open hands to help and serve others. I've not been concerned too much about how much you give or to whom you give or whether you give to the church or to missionaries or whether you give your time or your resources. I've never sought to label some kind of percentage that you ought to give. In fact, putting some kind of percentage on that, I have a fear a bit of that because I think that once you set some sort of standard... Like, like a tithe at 10%, people can say like, oh, I give 10%, that's all I need to give. And I've fulfilled my duty to the Lord. I'm a giver. I don't need to give anymore. It's, I give in what's the requirement of the law. Well, well, listen to what Jesus said about how we ought to love and serve God. He said, Mark 12, 30, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and with all of your mind. And isn't there more ways to love? Don't you feel that call upon your life to love God completely and just to pour that out and gush that out? It's not like you need to give 10% of your love to other people outside of your family. You can't even measure that. But it's that you, you, you ought to give all, all love to God flows out in loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's how it should flow. And I think likewise with giving, that's how it should flow as well. Is that an expression of love towards neighbor, there should be a gift and giving attitude. And God understands our weakness. He understands we're tired. He understands our financial responsibilities. He understands totally when our funds are at their end and we don't even have a penny more, more to give. He's not, he's not calling us to, to give everything because there is some that we... But we need to love God with everything we have. And I think what that means is holding everything with an open arm, being open with an open hand, being open to give to others and examining everything that we spend and say, should we spend it on ourselves or can we spend this on others? There are things you need to spend on yourselves. Spend it. You need to pay your house rent. Spend it. Don't go into foreclosure. You need to pay it on your bills. Maintain your car. Whatever you're going to do. But 
But realize everything you, you should evaluate. Is this an expression of love towards God in every way I can? And I simply think to establish some kind of percentage goes totally against the whole New Testament ethic of what pleases God. Now, it's not that I'm against a 10% tithe, but I think there's a good starting point. For the Old Testament, that's what God called people to do. Well, I think that's maybe a good starting point for us. But I would say if you're going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's going to abound more. You're going to have open, open arms. And I say this, God has always provided for us the church. And I know that He'll continue to provide. Philippians 4.19, this is next week's message. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will provide. He will. The question is, Will He provide at your hands? Will you be the means of that provision? Will you be like Esther? Who knows? Maybe you have been appointed for such a time as this. You remember when, when Mordecai talked to Esther before she went into the king? He said, well, God will deliver us. It's either by your hand or someone's else. Will you go in and will you be the one through whose hand God delivers His people from wicked Haman? And so likewise, he said, will you share in that? Will you be part of that to give... And when you give to others, that's why that's my heart as a pastor. That's why I want for us to be a, a giving church. That's why I've always pushed for us to to uh, allocate half of our money to missions. Uh, in, in other words, right, giving away to those who are doing the work of the ministry apart from our body. I want for a church to model how you ought to live, to give first, to save for a future day, and then to live on the rest. That's what we've done as a church. We have we just given right off the top, just away from us. It's what I think is required of us in wealthy America. And we have saved. We saved just slowly, building up funds. That's why um, that's why some of the uh, improvements are taking a bit of time because we want to save up that money to be able to take some improvements here upon the church and then live on the rest and live wisely on the rest. Live under your means on the rest. And similarly, that, that's how I want you to do I want you to give, save, and live. Right? Give to the work of the Lord. Whether it's church, whether it's missions, whether it's work, whether it's labor, whether it's whatever it is, just, just be a giver. It's a combination of all that, I trust. Save for your upcoming future expenses. Save for a time of emergency and live wisely on the rest. And I'd love to see your, your giving abilities to rise. As Randy Alcorn says in his great little book, The Treasure Principle, God prospers in me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of... Giving. Let's catch that again. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of, of giving. And now may God bless some of you to be able to give away half your income. I would love that. Whether it comes here, whether it comes someplace else. I, this is, I'm just like Paul. It's not, it's not really from me. It's not for me. It's, not for, it's, it's for you and Paul rejoicing that they had a concern to share. Giving brings joy. Second is this. Giving is a a good thing. We get that in verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul says the Philippians have done well. That is, they've done a good thing in giving to Paul. They saw his affliction and they sent a gift to help him during his imprisonment. And notice how Paul sees this. He doesn't see their, their gift as something that now belongs to him. To help him in his imprisonment, Paul, Paul sees it as something to, that we will share. Look again at verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. 
That comes from the Greek word koinonia, which we've seen several times in the Scriptures. We've seen that in Philippi, in Philippians as well, like chapter 1. Turn back there. Look at that. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Here it is, verse 5. In view of your participation in the Gospel, or the ESV, in view of your partnership in the Gospel, or literally, like the King James Version has it, in view of your fellowship in the Gospel. The idea here is that Paul was in partnership with those in Philippi. He was playing the role of apostle and preacher and evangelist, and those in Philippi were playing a supporting role. They gave and supported Paul in his ministry. And that's how Paul sees the gift. He sees this as sharing. Now, it's not that Paul would take this gift and use it for a little bit and then give it back, like, okay, I have it, okay, now you have it. No, he's going to take that gift and he's going to spend it as it should be used. He's going to use it on the financial help. He needs clothing. He needs to provide that for himself as food or fuel to keep his quarters warm wherever he is. He's going to help him survive in his imprisonment. He's going to use that resource all up. But there is a way in which that, that gift still continues to be shared, both by Paul and those in Philippi. And I see a great application here. Whenever you give to someone, there's always this, this link of sharing that goes on. In fact, those of you who supported Becca financially, a part of you will be going to Costa Rica this week as well. Because you've shared, that part goes. And in fact, what Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you've given, there will be a part of your heart where your treasure is. For those of you who supported Krissa, a part of you is in Czech Republic right now. Actually, I think she's in Sylvania right now. Oh, she's in Czech right now. I don't even know. She, Dad's out of the loop in many ways. So, I, I, In fact, I emailed her yesterday. I said, could you please copy me when you email Mom? I'd just like to help keep in the loop here a little bit. But if you supported her, a part of you is there in check. If you supported Grace Dean, a, a part of you is going to be in Honduras. She leaves in about two weeks or so. So we'll have her up here sharing about that. So church, we supported Marcy Wiebe. A, a part of us is in Japan next year. As we support the children's home in Nepal and India, a part of us is there. As we have helped build things, a part of us is there. We are sharing there. Leadership resources and training pastors, a part of us is there with the pastoral training. And I just say, what a, what a blessing this is. I, I, don't, I don't think I've shared this Sunday morning. I've shared this in our, our small group. Um, but I was on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I don't even know the noise. I, go, bloop, someone's instant messaging me. And it's Siraj from the children's home in Bakunde, which is about an hour and a half outside of um, Kathmandu. And we went back and forth with the same questions. It's kind of hard to, you know, I don't see him a lot. He's a, a precious friend, but I don't see him. He's doing a great job with the kids. He's got far more kids than I do. And how he manages all those kids, I don't, I don't know. But I tell him how blessed he is. But I said, how are things with you? How are things with the children? How are things at church? And then I, I asked about his father. His father is the pastor of the church where all the kids go to church. And um, he said something to the effect of this. He's getting older, but he's as strong as ever. He's just a strong guy. He's not a big guy. He's just a strong, you know, one of those guys who just kind of puts along and, and continues to go. And, and then he said something in effect of this. Whenever my father tells the history of the church, he talks about you. And that's because we as a church were a huge help 
to the church in Bakunde. When I, I first met them through Bob Clinton, they were in a, a rental facility. And uh, in fact, I remember, Phil, you remember going there? And I, I, I preached there in that small little room. Mostly women. I'm not sure. Maybe there were 30 people there. Something like that. Kind of up. And it was kind of cold. But they were just faithful people there in that room. And uh, so we did. They, since they were renting a quarter, we, we helped purchase land for them. And upon which the, the children's home was built. The church began meeting there. They needed another place. And so we, we purchased some land and started just a shell of a building just to help them. And now our hands are totally off of, of what's going on there. And uh, uh, that building is serving them well. Siraj said they're growing and they're prospering and, and they're doing well. And, and what's so encouraging about the work in Bakunde is that, I've told you this before, is that it's, it's in this village in a place where they're the only church in town. And I'm not sure they serve a, a area of maybe a couple thousand people. It's hard to, because they're walking all over because they walk, some of them walk two hours to get to church up and over the hills to get there. And and if you live in that community, go to church, you go to that church. And if you became a Christian, having lived in that, you became a Christian through the ministry of that church. And, and there, I don't know how many places on the planet, there are probably lots of places on the planet that are like that. Um, but, but we as a church were privileged to be kind of on the cutting edge of, uh, of really helping start and launch and provide and help this church and get on their own. And now they're going, they're going just well. And when Siraj says, when my dad, he talks about you, I, I said, you know what? He talks about all of you because you've provided the finances to be able to let us do that over these past 10 years or so, whatever it's been since we've been over there. I said, what a privilege to work on just the edge of where Christ has not yet been named. It's hard to find those locations, but by God's grace, we've been able to find one. I just say, what a privilege to share in that work. And that work continues to go on. And I just say, if you want to share in the work of God, come with open hands. Come with open hands and give and give to others. Well, let's move on to our second point. We've seen giving. Let's, let's look now at receiving. Verses 11 through 13. And Paul's going to talk about his perspective of, of receiving this gift. He says, not that I speak from want. Okay, that's why, by the way, in verse 14, he said, nevertheless. He's going to talk about, well, it's not that I really needed it, okay? Um, that's why he kind of had to clarify himself in verse 14. You've done well. It's a good thing that you gave. But he says this, Not that I spoke from what, speak from what, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And here again, Paul's clarifying why he's rejoicing in the Lord from his perspective of receiving this gift. It wasn't because he was in such need and Epaphroditus just happened to come along right when he needed it. Now, I love hearing those stories. You can read George Mueller. You can read uh, Hudson Taylor, um, Adoniram Judson. You, you can read William Carey, the, these missionaries overseas who are in dire straits and they're, they're totally out of funds and their bank account is literally zero and they need this rent check for $47.27, and they're on their knees praying, and the mail comes, and they have a check for $47.23. So they can pay that off, and they just live praying. Uh, George Mueller often has talked about how, if you read his books, you know, just a thousand answers to prayers, what it was, and the cupboards are bare, and he's got all these children to feed, and he doesn't know, and, 
And, he, and he's praying and then a, a milk truck outside breaks down and they didn't have refrigeration so much back in those days. So they had to use it. So they said, could you use all this milk? He's like, well, of course we could. We got all these children. We've been praying and God providing just in time. Well, that's not what happened to the Apostle Paul. All right. If it was, I'd, I'd tell you some more of these really encouraging stories. He wasn't in great need. That's what verse 11 speaks about. Not that I speak from want. Now, his, his verse is appreciated, verse 14, but it's he wasn't in a desperate situation. He's pointing out his situation wasn't desperate. And the reason for this, catch, catch this, is that Paul's situation was never desperate. Look again at verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That's the general. Now, verse 12, he gets particular. I know how to get along and by the way, these are opposites. With humble means, I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled or going hungry. Both having abundance and suffering need. In other words, regardless of the situation surrounding Paul's life, he was content. He was well satisfied. He was well taken care of. Paul, if Paul found himself in humble circumstances, he's content. If he found himself in affluent circumstances, he was what? He was, okay, help me. If he found himself in affluent circumstances, he was content. If he'd just eaten a seven-course meal at the, the Chinese buffet, he was content. If he'd gone three days without eating, he was content. If he was living in a mansion of 20 rooms, he was And if he was living in a shack with one room shared with a few farm animals, he was He was content. You say, well, what does it mean to be content? Well, let's start with the Greek word. The Greek word here is out our case. Out our case. comes from two words. First one, out. A-U-T. We get the word automobile from it. An automobile is a self-driving vehicle. Um, it got its name back in the days of horse and buggy. Where's the horse that pulled the buggy? But all of a sudden you had this, auto, this automobile that could move by itself. And Google has brought that to an entirely different level now. But it can, it can drive by itself. It is an auto. It's a self. The second part, our case, comes from a word meaning sufficient or satisfied. In other words, he's saying, I am self-sufficient. I'm self-satisfied. As uh, Thayer's concordance says, uh, Thayer's lexicon says, a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Strong enough to possess enough and need no external aid or support. Independent of external circumstances. That, that, that's what Paul is saying by this word. In other words, he's saying this. He says, my joy and satisfaction doesn't come from the external circumstances surrounding me. Rather, my joy and satisfaction and delight comes from within, from my being, and not from current circumstances and conditions. Now, there were times in Paul's life when his every need was met. Housing comfortable, enough food on the table, going well in the ministry. And in those times, he was content. And there were times where it was just the opposite. Sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and opposed by the brethren, the false brethren. 2 Corinthians 11, 26 and 27. But regardless of all the circumstances, he was content, self-sufficient, self-satisfied. And with going without, he wasn't seeking to obtain. And when facing ease, he wasn't seeking hardship. He was content. 
had an inner peace about him. He wasn't worried. He wasn't fretting. Which sounds a lot like the beginning of chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. This is the whole context. He, he's, he's not anxious. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You remember when I preached a message on that, I said, you know, you're circum- if you wait till your circumstances are right to rejoice, you're not going to rejoice. But if you have an inner self-sufficiency out our case, you will be rejoicing. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. They're all describing the contented person, whether he's rejoicing, whether he has this gentle spirit. He's not demanding of other things because he doesn't have any need in his life, so he's, he's not demanding. He's a gentle person. He's turning every anxious thought to the Lord to help. And and what are you seeking when you're anxious? You want to give it to God and then you want to have contentment. Or, as it says here, you want to have peace. Verse 7, right? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? But that your heart will be calm and composed in all anxious moments when you just pray before the Lord. That's what contentment is. Or do you notice even verse 9? The peace of God. When you practice these things, right? When you dwell upon the, the good and the right and, and, and dwell on the, the true things rather than dwelling on all your circumstances and surroundings. But when you get above your circumstances and above your surroundings, then it's the peace of God's going to dwell with you. God's very presence will be with you to carry you through the ups and downs of life. This is all about anxiety. And now he says, I am content in whatever circumstances I am. Because God is with me, His peace is with me. Is that not Psalm 23, verse 1? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David went through ups and downs of life. He was the king who knew all the pleasures of the palace and the glories of ruling a nation. But under Absalom's revolt, he was living in caves of the wilderness, running for his life with only a few faithful followers. And through it all, David never lacked. He said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He never lacked. He was content. Job's a picture of contentment, though at one point abounding with riches, a blessed family life, and then all that wiped away in a day, in a matter of minutes, literally. He said, naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's just content in God. In fact, so important is this topic of contentment that two books in the Puritan era, written in the 1600s, survived today and are read today. Thomas Watson's The Art of Divine Contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs' The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you struggle in the area of contentment, these might be good books to read. You can get them online. The, the, um, the links to download them will be in my sermon write-up on our website, rockvalleybiblechurch.org. You see there, by the end of the week, it should be there. You click on that. You go or you just Google search for these, these things. Thomas Watson, Jeremiah Burroughs, contentment. You'll get it. And, and then they're not long. You can read them on your electronic device. You can print them out. Watson's books, I think about 70 pages. And, and uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, maybe about 140, something like that. And, and both these books start with Philippians 1.11, explain it, exposit, and then just go in a ton of different directions about what godly Christian contentment looks like. Here's what Thomas Watson said. 
of Philippians 4.11. Here is a rare pattern for us to imitate. Paul, in regard of his faith and courage, was like a cedar. He could not be stirred. But for his outward condition, he was like a reed, bending every way by the wind of providence. When a prosperous gale did blow upon him, he could bend with that. I know how to be full. And when a boisterous gust of affliction did blow, he could bend with humility and said, I know how to be hungry. St. Paul was, as Aristotle speaks, like a die that has four squares, like a, a dice, right? You roll it however you will and it falls on the bottom. Let God throw the apostle whichever way he would. He always fell with the bottom on contentment. Thomas Watson called it a rare pattern for us to imitate. Jeremiah Burroughs called this contentment a rare jewel. Like a, a precious diamond that's brought from afar and lovely to behold. That ought to kind of give you a mind. Thomas Watson's calling it rare. Jeremiah Burroughs entitled his, his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I think that's something we struggle with. Just like I know anxiety is something we all struggle with, and I think contentment is something we all struggle with. But listen to how Jeremiah Burroughs describes how sweet contentment is, how beautiful this jewel is. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame freely submitting to God and His circumstances for life and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's, that's the rare jewel. It's gorgeous to behold. It's sweet. It's attractive. And it's something that most of us struggle to be. We're like what Jason Lehman described in his poem called Present Tense. It was spring... But it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was the spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged what I want, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Isn't that a great poem? And how true this is. We're always, we're always looking for something more. We're always looking for, for something to be better. And I quote Jeremiah Burroughs again. This is the hand of God. And it is what is suitable to my condition as best for me. And although I do not see the reason for the thing, yet I'm satisfied in my judgment about it. Now, now rather than saying that this, this is what God has for my life, I don't understand it, but I will accept it and believe that it is for my good. He said, that's God's plan, I accept it. And then Burroughs says in his way, we're usually apt to think that any condition is better than the condition which God has placed us. God, it may be, strikes you in, a chi in your child. 
Oh, if it would have been my possessions, you say, I'd be content. Or maybe he strikes you in your marriage. And oh, if I'd have been stricken in my health. Or if he strikes you in your health. Oh, if it had been my, my trade, I, I would not have cared. When he says, and this is some old English, you've got to figure this out. But we must not be our own carvers. We must not carve our own life. But let God do the carving in our life and be satisfied. Whatever particular afflictions God may bring us, we must be content in them. Now, we think of contentment. We are always looking forward to the bigger house, the better paying job, or the kinder boss, or the longer vacations, or the calm at home when the kids are gone, or the days we can retire and move to Arizona. But, but listen, winning the world doesn't buy contentment. I, I just ask you, which of the rich and famous are truly happy? These who have it all, who can do anything that they want, have enough fame to make themselves household symbols, are they happy? Anything that you know of those people is huge dysfunction, huge unrest. And while they're living things up to life as it is, as, as John D. Rockefeller, right, the, the Bill Gates of his age, was asked how much more money he needed before he felt satisfied, you know what he said? Just a little bit more, or one more dollar, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's the thing that will never be satisfied. Just, just a, a little bit more. Thomas Watson, again, I quote from this book, is so good. Rich men, if we may suppose them to be content in their estates, it is seldom so. Yet though they have estate enough, they have not honor enough. And if their barns are full enough, yet their turrets are not high enough. One would think that Haman had as much as his proud heart could desire. He was set above all the princes, advanced upon the pinnacle of honor as to be a second man in the kingdom. And yet, in the midst of his pomp, because Mordecai would not uncover a kneel, he's discontented, full of wrath, and there's no way to assuage this pleurisy of revenge. There's no way to avenge that, is what he says, but by letting all the Jews' blood and offering up them in sacrifice. Even when one has an abundance, life does not consist of his possessions, is what Jesus says. I do not believe it was an accident that Paul spoke of how he was content even in times of plenty. We often think that, right, as long as I get more, I, 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 get, I get more. But, but Paul said that even when I had plenty, I was, I was content. Because there are many people who have plenty and they're still not content. You're trying to capture this elusive goal like a like a greased pig, trying to catch this thing, and they never can catch it. Paul says, listen about the abundance. I know how to get along with humble means. There's, there's low. That's what we normally think of. Well, I need, just need to be content with where I am. But I know how to live in prosperity, Paul says. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I, I know how to, to live when all my needs are met. And that's no small deal, is what he's saying. And even Socrates, that ancient Greek philosopher, had it right when he said, he who is not contented with what he has will not be contented with what he does not have. Billy Graham tells a great story about those who are content and not content in his autobiography, Just As I Am. Some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration on the island of the Caribbean, he writes. So he's on this island in the Caribbean someplace. He says, one of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch on this island in the Caribbean. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. I'm the most miserable man in the world, he said. Out there's my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. 
I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want in life to make me happy, and yet I'm as miserable as hell. Billy Graham says we talked to him and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. And then after meeting him, they, they said they went down the hill to a small cottage where they were staying. And that afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman, too, 75 years old, same age as the old man, a widower who had spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. And he said this with a smile. I don't have two pounds to my name, but I'm the happiest man on this island. So Billy Graham then relates how he and his wife, Ruth, as they left. Billy said, Ruth, who do you think's the richer man? She didn't even reply because they both already knew the answer. And so I ask you this morning, are you content? Are you chasing after this greased pig? Has God so filled your heart that you are in a measure self-reliant? Not needing external things to bring you joy or the circumstances of your life driving your joy? Are you up and down because of the circumstances of life? Listen, I have good news for you this morning. Sir, contentment can be learned. Contentment can be learned. Look at, look at what he says here in verse 11. Not that I speak from what, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. Verse, verse 12 I, um, I know how to get along with humble means. In, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. There is a learning to contentment. We are not naturally born content. You just look at your children. They are not content. As soon as their brother or sister starts playing with a, a toy, it all of a sudden becomes their favorite. And they're not content until they have that toy. There's something in sinful nature, thank you, Adam, that creates within us this, this discontent all the time. And so we need to be learned. We, we need to be taught about how to be content. And Paul says, I've learned. And then he says in verse 12, I, I've learned the secret of being filled. And going, There's this secret. You, get, you, wanna, you wanna know a little secret of how to be content? I love secrets. Right? As Phil Gus he likes to tell me, right? A big secret. You guys know what a big secret is? What is it, Phil? Yeah, a thousand people know about this big, big secret. Here's a big secret. You ready? Verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, normally we see this verse on some athletic poster someplace, right? A- athlete trying to do some great thing or trying to catch or trying to run or dodge or, or whatever. And then underneath it, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Almost as if, here's the deal. You got some goal out there. You got some dream. You got some prize. You have the Super Bowl. You can do it through Jesus. You just, you just believe hard enough. Or you want to build this business, you can do it through Jesus. You want to do some great thing, you can do it through Jesus. Come on, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, it may not be your will to win the Super Bowl. It may not be your will to make the team. It may not be your will to get in to college. This verse isn't talking about that. It's not talking about some dream you have that you can be empowered enough to just see, I can do it. I can do all things. You're not the little engine. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Through Christ, I can. Through Christ. That's not it. This verse is talking about the ability to be content through all the circumstances of life that God brings you. That's what this verse is saying. 
listen, if God has brought the circumstance into your life, and He has, Thomas Watson, you can go back in my notes, read that quote, if God afflicts and strikes and brings, if God causes all things to work together for good, and He does, Romans 8, 28, then God has the strength to carry you through that circumstance as well. James 1, let no one say when he's tempted. I'm being tempted by God. God tempts no one. But with that temptation, will provide the way of escape. When that temptation comes for discontentment, he's going to provide the way of escape because he's brought the trial. He's brought the difficulty. And he will carry you through the circumstance as well. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? If God gave us Jesus... Will He not freely give us all things? All that we need is in Him. And, and Paul says that in respect to receiving. He says, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in want because I've learned to be content whatever thing, whatever circumstance I am. You give the gift to me. You've done well. Verse 14. And, and it's certainly, I think Paul, there's a delight in him when his circumstances go up and he can live more comfortably. I mean, it, it's painful to have humble circumstances, but he, he can live there. And, and whether God would bring that gift from them or not, he was okay with that. But he rejoiced greatly that they had loved him and cared for him in that way and he saw God working in that, that perspective. That, that's what Paul's saying in just receiving a gift. I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And when you have that perspective, that there's nothing that I have that hasn't been received, that hasn't been given to me, that you can rejoice in what you have. And that attitude will lead us to contentment. Well, here's Paul. He talks about how they gave. May we be givers. He talked about receiving. May we be content. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I know how these things strike our hearts. How hard it is to find contentment in a lot that You've given us. And yet, Lord, I pray that You would God grant us this gift. Show us the secret is that through Christ we can do all things because it's in Him that You strengthen us. So may we run, may we run to the cross as much as when our anxious thoughts come into our mind as everything by prayer and supplication, we, we, we let that be known to You and Your peace comes to us. I pray also, God, that when, um, when we're being discontent with something, when something doesn't sit right with us, may we, may we run to You as well. May we, through Christ, be strengthened in our inner man to be self-sufficient with regard to attitude and perspective. God, may we be done with letting circumstances guide and direct our joy, guide and direct the way that we act and live and respond. So, Father, I pray You would do that work in us. God, make us a generous people who give. Make us a contented people who are ready to live without we need your spirit to come. And so I plead, O oh Lord, that you would do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.